Okay, good evening. My name is Walter Armbrust, in case you don't already know that. I'm a fellow of the Middle Eastern Studies Center, Middle East Center, Middle East Center. Um, and I'm here to introduce our, our speaker this evening. It's Habib Bhatta. He's a journalist and a filmmaker. Um, he's here as a Reuters fellow uh, in Oxford. Um, the Reuters Institute has a program to bring in practicing journalists um, for, uh, it's usually, I think it's usually two terms, at least it's two terms in the case of Habib. Um, Habib is an investigative journalist uh, and editor of the news site Beirut Report. He's covered Lebanon and the Middle East for over 15 years. He's contributed to a lot of news outlets that you undoubtedly have um, read or listened to, The Guardian, BBC News, Al Jazeera English, Vice on HBO, um, CNN, Aramco World. I mean, it's a, it's a very long and prestigious list of, um, you know, sort of journalistic outlets. And he's also been a TEDx speaker um, and a journalist fellow at the American University of Beirut. Um, his investigative journalism has covered topics such as the demolition of archaeological and architectural heritage sites, the unregulated privatization of public space, green space, as well as dubious development on coastal areas. I think almost all development of coastal areas is dubious myself. Um, and what he's, what he, the, and the other hat that he wears in his life, professional or otherwise, is um, as an activist. And uh, I mean, I, I'm guessing that you probably had been active in the trash collection protest, or, or well, were you just, it. or were you just covering it as a journalist? It. Okay. I mean, a lot of coverage. Yeah. Um, that's that's I guess the um, the main part the main sort of point of the of the lecture that he's going to give here this evening, which is um, he's going to tell us about the the waste management crisis in Lebanon, which sounds, given all of the dramatic things that happen in the region, like um, perhaps not such a big deal. But as we were just saying before the lecture began. Um, these kinds of protests are one of the ways that activists develop a repertoire of protest. And, of course, uh, it can be used for other purposes, and there are other aspects to the trash collection crisis that um, have political significance that may be more than appears um, at first glance. And, of course, they didn't get a huge amount of coverage because of the way news works, um, but perhaps they should have. And so uh, with, without any further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Habib to tell us about activism, media, and accountability. Thanks, guys. Can you hear me okay? So I'm going to talk today about some of these uh, topics, not just the garbage crisis, but um, a bit more. Uh, about what's been happening over the last few years in Lebanon, um, the kind of empowered activism that we're seeing, new activism, uh, kind of a, a hybridity between the old and the new media, um, personalized politics, which we're seeing all across the world, people uh, not joining parties but expressing themselves um, in other ways that are political. And also to finally ask the question, is this a new kind of digital accountability? Is that possible um, and is that viable? Um, you might have heard about uh, the garbage crisis in Lebanon. Uh, if you haven't, um, about six months ago, the government stopped picking up the trash, basically. Uh, and this is because the major landfill, we only had one major landfill in the country, um, which is a question mark, uh, was over capacity and there were protests. And so the trash just started piling up on the streets. And uh, a lot of people got um, really angry about this because to them, it represented a bigger problem, which is the post-war government in Lebanon. We had a civil war uh, in the 80s and the 70s, uh, ended in the early 90s. Ever since the early 90s, they haven't really been able to get their act together, and um, there's been a lot of corruption, and so we don't have power, we don't have uh, 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 potable water. Uh, these are just one of the many things. So garbage was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. People went out in the streets and started demanding an end to these corrupt politicians that have been ruling us. Um, so for the past six months, that protest has been going on. The garbage is still out there. It really kind of stinks. Um, but uh, protests have continued on a regular basis. They've gotten bigger and smaller. Um, but they're still going on six months after the fact. And so I wanted to just show you the latest video 
that's been uploaded. And this is just, I think, a week less than a week ago. Um, and so you can see here what is the new weapon of protest in Beirut. Hatkis, put a bag, a garbage bag. That's the Prime Minister's office. Take down the Parliament, put the plastic garbage bags. Replace them. That's for the army troops. So the new weapon, they call it um, Zabalika 1, which is kind of like funny because, you know, Hezbollah has rockets and they call them like Ra'ad 1, 2. So it's almost like they developed their own guerrilla weaponry. Um, some people found it uh, pretty funny. Um, some people found it kind of like a departure from the big protests um, that were more kind of violent and kind of break police lines. And so a lot of like leftists, people that are the traditional kind of protests, they found it um, upsetting. Um, but I still kind of look back at this and I wonder how, how many Arab countries could people bring a catapult out and just start catapulting the riot police with garbage and get away with it um, and right in front of the prime minister's office. So uh, there is something interesting about that. Um, but, you know, how do we get here? How do we get to the point where we're, you know, having a medieval battlefield in the middle of downtown Beirut? Um, it didn't just start with the garbage protest. Uh, there's really an atmosphere, I think, of activism, digital activism that's been going on for the past three or four years uh, in Lebanon. And I wanted to talk to you guys a bit about that um, situation. And so I'm going to start with some backgrounds on a story that's been going on, again, for several years, but hasn't really made the media coverage like the garbage crisis has. And we'll go back and talk a bit more about that as well. Let me just put this on presenter view. Um, so I'll start, I want to talk about three cases that happened over the past three or four years. And a lot of these have to do, um, again, with government, um, government civil works projects as well as private development projects and the government's role in promoting private development. Uh, we'll start on, uh, on the far hand. That's Ashafi. That's East Beirut. Uh, that's a highway project, very controversial highway project. Um, in the center, which is considered downtown Beirut. Um, there is a major uh, star architect project um, by Jean Nouvel, famous French uh, architect. There's a big battle over that. And then the lastly, we'll look at Delier, which is um, the last rocky outcrop of Beirut's coast. There is also another star architect, Rem Kohlhaas, developing something there. Um, I'll start out with the, the central story, which is downtown Beirut. Now, for those of you who don't know, downtown uh, Beirut was rebuilt at the end of the Civil War. Supposedly, that's the language that they used. Uh, in reality, they basically kind of demolished much of the old uh, city and built a redevelopment project for wealthy investors. So very expensive apartments, uh, very swanky uh, buildings um, uh, and resident hotels and whatnot. And in that process... Um, you know, there was a lot of digging, obviously, going on, and uh, Beirut is 10,000 years old, or God knows how many years, something like that. Uh, they find a lot of Roman ruins, uh, Phoenician ruins, etc. And there's been a big controversy about how the city was rebuilt, again, going to how the government is managed in Lebanon. Uh, business is kind of getting a free reign. And what's going on is that um, these digs, a lot of archaeology has been discovered, and a lot of it has been kind of vanished or disappeared, and even officials admit that. Um, and so one of the stories I decided to work on a couple, uh, about three years ago was, uh, was this story. And the problem with these, with these construction sites is that they have these big walls around them. You really can't see what's going on below the surface, what they're digging up. 
Um, but I noticed that in between the wood panels, you could kind of make out um, something significant down there. Uh, and so, so what I did was I took these pictures and I put them online and I tried to see, I have a blog and I thought I could share them and see who knows about this site. And sure enough, I started to get a lot of interest from archeologists and activists involved in archeology span um, saying this is a really important site. You know, this, this could be one of the most important sites uh, in Beirut. Um, but they were all concerned um, because Jean Nouvel, the famous French architect, was commissioned to build this skyscraper with five-star hotel and luxury mall complex. Uh, so I asked the Ministry of Culture if I can go down there and take some pictures, and uh, they said, absolutely not. Um, and I thought, well, you know, they said, you know, what if, I said, what if the ruins are bulldozed tomorrow and we can't see what was there? And they said, don't worry, we'll email you pictures in that case. And I kind of thought, that seems a bit problematic. Um, so um, I thought, you know, people have a right to see what's going on down there. So once again, I asked the community, um, how can I get pictures? And they said, you know, uh, why don't you go up to the rooftops and take pictures? I tried going up. The problem is that the site was often covered in a canvas. You couldn't see it. Uh, so I would just kind of monitor the site daily. You know, every time I go downtown for about a month, I would walk by, check out, see what the state was. And one day, sure enough, the canvases were gone. So I just ran home, grabbed my camera, ran back, uh, just snuck into a building, and I started taking some shots. And uh, this site really hadn't been seen by the public. It's a massive uh, site, I think at least uh, you know, maybe tens of thousands of square meters uh, in the middle of the downtown area. Uh, there were a lot of interesting features. There was uh, long Roman roads, uh, long, uh, extensive mosaic floors um, that are believed to belong to 4th century Basilica, be the oldest church uh, in the city, and most importantly, what's considered to be, what's believed to be the Roman gate of Beirut. Beirut was a, a Roman city, and they haven't been able to really locate it, but here was perhaps the front door of Roman Beirut. Uh, so I took these pictures again, I put them online, shared them, and they started to make an impact. People started to like them, share them. A lot of bloggers did their own blog posts, reposted them, newspapers, TV stations, uh, Soon, everybody was talking about the site, which nobody had really seen because of the walls. Um, and, you know, two days after the photos were going around, the minister of culture, uh, he just came out and um, announced that the project, $150 million project, would be stopped. Um, and he said that he decided to do this a long time ago. Uh, and, but, you know, I kind of found it interesting that it was only under this atmosphere of intense activism, sharing, uh, reposting, that he made those plans public. Uh, this is not an isolated case. I'd like to talk also about the highway project in East Beirut. Uh, there was a $100 million highway project, uh, somewhere between $75 and $100 million project, that was planned over for one kilometer of road. Um, people found that very mysterious. And also, it was going to go through the, one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city and one of the greenest neighborhoods in the city. Uh, and Beirut is a very ungreen city. So there was a movement to kind of get attention around this issue and, and start investigating it. And one of the first things the activists did was they used visualizations. They started to kind of visual uh, before and after images that they produced to show what impact this highway would have um, and how it would destroy the last green space, the last really urban farm of Beirut. Um, this, uh, this protest... Uh, movement began with, you know, with these pictures, but it also helped, I think, importantly, convince a lot of journalists that this was a story worth pursuing. And a lot of journalists were kind of ignoring this story. Um, so these pictures went viral. There was a whole set of them before and after shots showing the destruction that this road would, would have. And then there was also a whole uh, lot of studies that were being done by the activists, um, not just from an environmental or uh, heritage point of view, but also from this highway would actually cause more traffic then it would relieve. So there were actually traffic experts that weighed in, university professors that weighed in, urbanists, architects, uh, even the dean of uh, Harvard Architecture School, who's Lebanese, wrote a letter to the mayor of Beirut. Um, what happened was, uh, is that I was convinced as well as a journalist to write about the story, and I went and I interviewed the, um, the main uh, engineer involved in the project, and he told, I told him, well, they say this project has no environmental impact study, um, and it's going to really wreck this neighborhood and make more traffic. And he said, what, what impact? What, what environment study? We don't need a study. Uh, there's no trees there. Um, so as I said, so I, I wrote this big 
write-up for the local newspaper. Um, and then I went to my blog afterwards, and I wrote a story about these non-existent trees, and I tried to document um, this, all these non-existent trees uh, that he was talking about. The protests continued online and offline uh, in the streets. Uh, protesters took over the streets, blocked major roads. Um, a lot of papers were writing about it now. You know, it became a really big story in magazines, investigative reports, all kind of questioning the fundamental engineering uh, kind of detailed analysis of this project. Um, and then the media started to show up, the bigger mainstream media, the TV stations started to show up, uh, and every major station started to, to air the story. Um, it became a real buzz uh, in Beirut. And, um, and sure enough, about two months later, the ministry, uh, the, the municipality of Beirut, uh, who was overseeing the project, was forced to abandon this project. Um, and start doing an environmental impact study, which everybody had been demanding. And that pretty much kind of put a nail in the coffin of the project. It's been about two and a half years now, and the study is ongoing. Um, so the project has been pushed back, uh, although there are still some will in the municipality that they talk about it every once in a while. But recently the mayor of Beirut said during a press conference that they didn't let me do a good project for Beirut. Um, so he tried to blame the activists as hurting his plan. So that was kind of... And interesting, uh, some could read it as a, as, as a show of, of, of concession. Um, the last project I'll talk about is the Delia area. Uh, you might be familiar with those of you who know Lebanon with the Raushi pigeon rocks, those two uh, big rocks that are on a lot of postcards. They're there, but they're kind of just a, uh, they're really dwarfed by a much bigger rock that juts out into the sea. Uh, and that area has been traditionally a place where people have gone uh, to swim. Uh, public has gathered. Uh, it's one of the few publicly accessible places in Beirut. Uh, most of Beirut's coastline is uh, concreted marinas. Uh, you have to pay a lot of money to go to private resorts, and there aren't really any free, very many free beaches left. Um, and this place had a lot of historic meaning. Families used to picnic there. Um, there's an ecology there. There's, there's a lot of cave formations. There's even um, some... Uh, a lot of ecology, some seals uh, uh, live there. But uh, once again, a private capital connected to the prime minister, uh, former prime minister, uh, wants to build a massive hotel and seaside resort there with you know, absolutely no... Uh, so he ended up uh, finding some way to buy this property, manipulating the laws while he was prime minister, uh, the campaign alleges, and he ended up getting this piece of historic public space, publicly used space, but there was a campaign that started to resist this. And this says, uh, uh, basically, remove your uh, scaffolding from our Raushi. Rhymes in Arabic, Erfa, Warshitkun, An Warshitna. And this campaign started to document um, all of the barbed wire fencing that was put up along the coast. And this was kind of crazy. People couldn't believe that this beautiful site that was on postcards now had barbed wire around it because the investors want to protect their property. They started a Facebook page where they got all of the historic photos um, showing that from, you know, uh, from you know, the, the 50s and the 80s, people were having diving contests there. Uh, it has these natural pools where people come and swim. Um, so a real big campaign had started about that, um, bringing, again, the media, having press conferences on the uh, seafront boardwalk area, uh, the Corniche, uh, which, which is near this site. Um, they brought live performances. Uh, uh, they started to use the space and occupy the space because it had been an abandoned space um, because of the fences and whatnot, and they started to kind of break through. There was a hole made in the fence, and people started to gather there and have regular events there. Um, they also started to use art and memes, uh, which are kind of like digital viral content. Uh, they took the 10 uh, lira note, the Lebanese 10-pound note, and they put a barbed wire fence in front of it. Uh, this image went very viral. They started to use the fences as a canvas, um, and also on the legal side, there was a multi-pronged effort. So there were lawyers that got involved and actually did some research to find out that this project actually um, probably violates some laws because it was uh, it, it was basically found a an old. Uh, they found out that this the ability to make this project was created during the war. There was a decree passed during the savagery of the war when no one could actually resist it, um, and it kind of slipped under the radar uh, and wasn't really approved by the other than the municipality wasn't approved by the other bodies, so there was no balance of powers, and they found this law, and now they launched a big lawsuit against the government for passing this. And so it's been a real problematic issue for the investor, and the activism there is continuing. Um, even the 
architect Rem Kolhas has responded to the activists. Uh, it's, 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 it's really kind of caused a big embarrassment for them. Um, and that case is ongoing. And uh, the fence actually recently was torn down by activists uh, after a protest at another area, they went and tore down the fence. So uh, there is a lot of uh, that whole area now is being documented and, and books, an area that people really didn't know about um, has been brought to life. There's a lot of groups that are doing this kind of work in Lebanon today. Uh, it's not just one or two. Um, there are v- groups fighting racism. I'll talk a bit about that. There are groups fighting for the heritage of the city. The city is being torn down. Uh, there are groups fighting uh, against internet uh, censorship and regulation. Um, there are feminist collectives. So there really are a lot of uh, battles going on that aren't really given a lot of attention. It kind of raises the question of what an organization is. And a lot of the literature about Lebanon, I've found, kind of looks at NGOs. Um, but a lot of these groups aren't NGOs. Uh, they come together through Facebook. They come together um, through ad hoc kind of meetings. And they don't really see that. Uh, so I kind of think this area has kind of been ignored in a lot of the research about Lebanon. Um, the problem with the NGOs and that kind of work is that a lot of times they're infiltrated by political interests. Um, they're considered weak and non-confrontational. Uh, they kind of tow party lines. Uh, the, every major party in Lebanon, which is, comes through a, a militia heritage from the war, uh, kind of tries to dominate and create their own uh, uh, spheres of influence. Um, so, so these are kind of informal collectives. And they're also practicing issue-based politics, which is kind of rare in Lebanon, where we have an archaic sectarian system where most of the political performances are, are based on, on that kind of sectarian division and feudal divisions in the country that don't allow issues to be uh, discussed, but rather identities um, and fear. Another interesting project, um, this happened in 2012, was the Stop Lira project, where basically one of our smart uh, ministers uh, decided to come up with a one-page law to regulate the Internet. Um, and he decided that all websites should have an address uh, and, and that only one person could have one website. You know, um, So it really brought a lot of questions into play. What well, was a Facebook page, a website, Twitter page? Um, all this was very vague. Um, and so this law was also said that you couldn't insult uh, certain, you could have to be ethical. Uh, so it's very vague language, uh, could have spelled disaster. Uh, but the law was leaked uh, to blogs. Uh, it was translated to English. Uh, lawyers started to pick, uh, pick it apart. Um, there was a hashtag that started called Stop Lira. They actually named the law Lira, Lebanese Internet Regulation Act. law had no name, but the activists tried to name it. Um, and it, it went viral, and the minister's phone was beeping like crazy. He later told me uh, it was really, uh, he was really not, not prepared for that. Um, he quietly put that law aside in the drawer, and we haven't heard from it again um, for the past three years. Uh, he conceded to me that this is a new force. Uh, he should have done his homework first, so he'll be more prepared next time. Uh, but that law was uh, pretty much killed. This is the kind of thing that I think 10 years ago laws you know, would just get passed. Uh, they would, there wasn't this kind of lobbying effort um, from, from this uh, digital sphere, let's say, and also the organizing that comes through that. Uh, it's not just the government. The private sector in Lebanon hasn't been spared by uh, citizen reporting, citizen videos. The Middle East airline uh, had really bad, broken seats, poor service. Uh, there was even a racist incident where a um, where the uh, flight attendant uh, made some racist slurs. Uh, and uh, all of this was exploded online, and the company was forced to... Uh, to, to apologize after initially denying everything when the story went viral, uh, the airline was, uh, had to apologize, and the story of racism came again uh, into the discourse of public debate, um, and it's still a very real issue. Also, a Lebanese supermarket chain, um, which is now regional, uh, got into heat on social media when they were um, basically uh, harming the development of a union. There was a private union was going to be formed. The workers were not getting all their rights. They weren't being paid uh, properly. They weren't getting their insurance rights. And a a big campaign started against the supermarket. Um, And that ended up also in uh, a minister helping, a former minister helping them create a union. Uh, But there was a lot of attacks that were documented, attacks on the workers. Um, The actual CEO of the company would be on Facebook answering people. So it was very interesting to see a CEO of a company kind of answering each and every uh, comment and being shamed constantly uh, on the Internet. These new tools um, include digital documentation, photos, the visualizations I talked about, the memes, uh, humorous um, 
They're also kind of a, a broadcasting medium. Uh, traditional TV shows and TV channels in Lebanon now have to compete with some of these pages that have tens of thousands of likes and audiences that are as big as some of their TV shows, and some of their TV shows don't really get that big of audiences. Um, uh, interestingly, these Facebook pages also provide kind of a forum to debate. Um, for example, a page called Save Beirut Heritage uh, you know, there are very few old buildings left remaining in the city of Beirut because of this development craze after the war, uh, and there aren't really a lot of laws to protect the architectural heritage of the city. So these walls, like uh, pages that have open walls, like, say, Beirut Heritage, allow activists um, and, and just ordinary citizens to have conversations about buildings that are being torn down, to spot them before they're torn down to create. And they've actually stopped a lot of demolitions, uh, but they haven't stopped others. But at the same time, I use this page as well as a journalist because it's able, I'm able to, um, which has, again, thousands of likes and a big audience and a community, I'm able to get questions answered about who owns buildings. People will kind of say, oh, my uncle lived there, or I know the lawyer who's fighting the case. It's also a way of kind of crowdsourcing information and getting a lot of debate going. What's interesting also is how these groups are impacting the media in Lebanon. The media in Lebanon you know, reflects the political system, politicians own TV stations, uh, so, you know, they kind of are tend to be towing a sectarian line. That's at least the argument. And um, we don't really see a lot of reporting on, you know, people's concerns. We see a lot of reporting on politicians meeting each other, um, kind of promoting each other, using their TV stations to promote each other. But this kind of activism has become so popular they can't really ignore it. Um, and so they're actually doing a lot of reports on all of these stories that I mentioned have become uh, news stories uh, you know, the media in Lebanon is also very small uh, kind of shoestring operations, oftentimes, you know, just a room full of journalists not really having the resources to investigate things. And that's where the kind of activists are coming into play is that a lot of them, these aren't just hippies, which is what the municipality of Beirut likes to call them, but a lot of them are actually professors, architects, engineers who have access to a lot of information and studies that are being put out there on these Facebook pages and these groups, and the media is picking up that and picking up the right questions to ask when they go into a press conference. They know the kind of detailed problems with, with the projects. Um, and it's been, I think, beneficial for them because these audiences are huge. People are not used to seeing local issues being talked about. They're used to seeing propaganda on television. So this kind of genre of activist, the activist news package, is becoming a regular feature in uh, Lebanese. That has been the case for the past few years. Uh, it's been amplified a lot during the garbage protests, and I'll get back to that. Um, so again, there's kind of a questioning here of the old media logics of uh, propagating politicians. Has that being, is that being somehow diminished? Uh, also, I'll talk about racism at beach resorts, staying on the private sector. Uh, Lebanon is known for uh, having a lot of migrant workers, and there are a lot of racist incidents that come with that, and the kafala system, those of you who don't know, is considered to some to be modern-day slavery. Um, and one of the aspects of this that's, that's, that's generating activism is um, an undercover investigation by an activist movement called the Anti-Racist Movement that did undercover cameras and found out that Ethiopians were being banned from beach resorts, major beach resorts in the country. It is undercover investigation. Um, it went online, and then a local media outlet, uh, El Jadid, decided to pick up the story and just kind of replicate what the activists had did. They did their own undercover investigation. Some really damning and racist language was being used by these really fancy resorts, some of them connected to politicians. Um, and and so, they, so the TV station, was a big audience, went and interviewed the activists who did it. They did their own investigation. And then they went to the Minister of Tourism, and they showed him what was going on. He was, like, shocked. Um, and and, and the one, one of the owners was his friend. He said, this is my friend. He says, I can't believe this, because he actually had passed you know, going backwards, but he actually passed a law banning racism. This, this had been a story several years ago, but obviously the law was not being, his law was not being abided by. So this is my friend, and he actually said in the video, the owner, oh, I don't care about this minister. And so the minister was shocked, and they did this funny graphic putting him together um, with some music, and, uh, and that really kind of... So then they, they went ahead, the activist group did another investigation um, following up on that, and it turned out that almost no resorts were... Being, uh, were banning people as they had been. Again, it probably has crept back up again and needs to be maintained, but there was an impact there, I think. Um, you know, Lebanese media has traditionally been very timid. Uh, they haven't really gone after power. They don't really go to jail because, not only because we have a free system, because people don't really take a lot of risks oftentimes, but now that's becoming a thing. 
uh, you're seeing a lot of TV crew, well, at least one channel, you're seeing the TV crews get beat up oftentimes. I want to show you one more video here related to that issue. So um, a bunch of journalists had done a story about corruption at the Lebanese uh, port and the custom authorities. Uh, the head of the customs department didn't want to go on camera, so the journalist pulled a Michael Moore stunt and went on a loudspeaker in the street telling him to come down from his office and answer my questions. He ended up getting beat up on camera and thrown in jail with the crew. Um, the TV station kept the live feed on that, showed all of that police brutality, zoomed in on all people that were beating up. Uh, his TV station really stood by him. And they kept a live feed, and they said, everybody come down to Justice Palace. So Justice Palace, which is a place that's you know, notorious for being a security state kind of area. People, people don't really stop by and loiter. Uh, there was a huge crowd that came down. I'll play you a bit of that. Thousands of people came out supporting the journalists. So you can imagine how that played out. I'll just play the, the how that ended after several hours. All of the journalists were released. And this is interesting because this, and this, was, this was, again, not recently, this was a few years ago. Um, this has happened before with other movements where activists have gone to jail and people have just surrounded police stations and demanded their release. And again, this is kind of unprecedented, I think, in Lebanon um, to be kind of challenging authorities in this way. And it's always gone on for a few hours. The first slide in my talk was, um, was a picture of another police station where people had, again, five activists had been arrested and released that same day. Let me go back to my presentation. So that's, that's, again, this is the picture on the right here. is another police station, another part of town where activists had been arrested after um, protesting a member of parliament's motorcade who had been parked in someone's parking spot and they were protesting, just calling out that they're corrupt um, and they were actually arrested, not the bodyguards. And the bodyguards actually beat up a lot of the the, the activists, and then they threw them in jail. So again, they came out in the streets and demanded this release. And the other channel also freeze frame on all of the um, security agents. In each case, the security agents have been undercover people who are kind of untouchable. They were all freeze framed and named and shamed on, on television. And again, this is kind of unprecedented. Uh, this story is... Um, so we have seen a lot of concrete changes. We've seen law withdrawn. We've seen staff fired at the Middle East Airlines, the racist incident. Uh, we've seen projects, multi-million dollar worth, hundreds of millions of dollars kind of stopped or uh, really kind of called into question, made controversial. Um, policies have been reversed. Uh, activists have been released. Officials are engaging. They're actually very involved. They're actually, the officials... Recently, the mayor of Beirut kind of said that, you know, he, he's reading all the activist pages. It showed that, you know, he's reading everything that they're saying. You know, they're very kind of worried about what's being said, and they make these point-by-point -point defenses, which are sometimes ridiculous. Um, on the other hand, we have digital politicians. So at the same time as this is being used by activists, we have politicians who are now becoming really big social media stars, and they're using that kind of... Uh, we have our telecom minister who's now calling himself a geek, and a fan of superheroes, even though he's basically the heir to a multi-million dollar fortune and one of the biggest banks in the country, and he's part of the feudal system. He's calling himself now the cool guy. Uh, we have the British ambassador to Lebanon who um, is calling himself a naked diplomat. Uh, he has a blog. Um, they say that they're doing digital diplomacy. Actually, Tom Fletcher was here today in Oxford giving a talk about digital diplomacy, and he's written a book about his experience in Lebanon. Um, and he thinks that's the new way. They're doing a lot of what the activists are doing. They're using the same kind of tools. They're kind of, but they have these staffs that help them. So some actually hire staff to create Instagram accounts, blogs, uh, social media teams. 
Uh, they're posting the kind of content that's engaging. Uh, one of the ministers is posting uh, comic book uh, heroes that he likes and 80s music videos, and people are just eating it up. And they're just, because in Lebanon, our politicians have been notoriously uh, not engaged with the public, and so the smallest effort makes a big impact, and people are starting to hail them without looking at their policies. Uh, the minister himself uh, of telecom is, is creating um, hashtags. He's creating his own hashtags. He's creating his own contests. He's giving away prizes, uh, social media, pri- like you know, free phones and whatnot. Uh, he's partnered up with, uh, with, with, with uh, organizations. I'll get back to that. Right here we have the British ambassador who is doing, he's doing TED Talks at universities. Uh, he's taking pictures of himself making tabbouleh. Uh, with his housekeeper and saying that he's for rights of migrants, but we don't really know, you know, what his uh, you know, actual, was he actually lobbying the government on this issue or was he just taking a selfie? Suddenly he was, uh, you know, uh, basically hailed as the best minister ever, the best ambassador ever, and we wish our politicians were like you. And just, again, from one picture, he's gotten this huge fan base. Um, the minister of telecom there on the right, meeting with bloggers, uh, who criticized him in the past and, you know, sharing a beer with them and posting it on Facebook and getting a lot of likes, getting a cartoon of himself uh, even more. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the cartoonists in Lebanon liked him so much, she drew a cartoon for him. He created, the minister created a contest, Be the Minister for a Day contest. Uh, again, <laughs> unprecedented kind of thing. Uh, and, and people participated in droves. And the, the contest was actually Guess My Accomplishments. You had to guess his accomplishments to win <laughs> this. Yeah. And actually, the accomplishments are really ridiculous because Lebanon has one of the slowest internet speeds in the world. Um, and so he kind of created all these accomplishments for himself um, that he put up on the website. And the winner got to be minister of a day, whatever that meant. I wasn't really clear. We never saw that day someone was minister. Um, but everybody who showed up to the press conference... Uh, there was a raffle. There was a, there was a raffle at the press conference. I'd never seen this in my life. You walk in, they give you a number, and they had a raffle, and they were giving away free uh, phones and tablets. He partnered with Samsung. You could see the Samsung. Um, the ministry was turned into a Samsung showroom almost. Uh, Samsung was giving away the laptops and the iPhones, and they got to put their ads everywhere in the ministry building. Um, I never heard of government that gives away gifts. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe I need to do some more research on that, but that sounded pretty... Uh, unique to me, and people kind of really thought he was great um, because he was giving away pride. He built a huge audience for himself, basically, um, through that as being the only minister who cares and gives us stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, he also started a hashtag campaign, and he kind of mobilized all of his followers, his newfound followers, to attack his political rivals. And his political rival in another uh, government ministry, he blamed him for the slow internet. Um, Obviously, it's not one man who stops the internet coming into a country, but he made that case for that by creating this hashtag called Iftah al-Hanafi, which means open the tap. Um, and I meant, you know, that it, was, it was this guy's fault. He, was, he, wasn't, he had the internet tap closed. Um, and so he got all these people to mobilize against his political rival, um, which obviously it's a more complicated story with a lot of layers of bureaucracy and private companies that are bidding for these contracts. He, he used the hashtag to really simplify that issue and make it to his advantage. Uh, because he you know, uh, had this cool style, a local magazine profiled him, paying a lot of attention to how he dresses, um, uh, the fact that he wears tennis shoes, um, and he's kind of cool uh, guy, doesn't wear shoots, suits, he wears jeans. Um, and the article basically turned into, uh, actually I'll just say this first, so the, the journalist that was interviewing him, the minister handed his phone to her, and he has a lot of like, tens of thousands of followers, and he said, why don't you tweet this from my phone? And so the journalist was so excited and saying, this is, this is me tweeting from the minister's phone. You imagine the minister's giving up his phone. Um, and you know, she went on to say that he's very modern and straightforward. Um, he's chill. He's chill. He let me commandeer his Twitter. Um, she ended up writing an article um, that uh, basically wasn't an investigation of how slow the Internet was in the country, but was the top ten reasons of why he was cool. Um, and he's like us, he listens, he tweets back. Um, it was a whole, like, 10-page spread on him, and people just, you know, so his popularity kept growing and growing. Um, and then, you know, funny enough, he had a birthday party where he invited all of these journalists that had been nice to him. Obviously, I wasn't invited. Uh, he actually doesn't like me at all. Um, I'm the only person, who, one of the only people I've actually written five or six articles kind of calling into question the fact that the infrastructure and the contracts were very murky um, and, and really slow still. We have the slowest internet in the world, yet they're celebrating. 
Uh, he had a big birthday party, invite, and then all of the kind of uh, some of the editors of a tech magazine was posting on Instagram how much fun they had. I will talk now about the uh, You Stink movement, uh, going back now to where we are, where we started. I will show you another quick video about that. So for those of you who are not familiar with what happened, uh, this about six months ago, again, the garbage crisis started and activism began again on Facebook using a lot of the same tools that have been used for the past few years in Lebanon. This is one of the first major protests. The police actually even hit their own men with the water cannon there. So this kind of went on all night and it, and it went live on TV. So the TV channels were there covering this live. These images went on for hours. Got a lot of people motivated. Very defiant. And they put all this barbed wire fences at the front of the prime minister's office, started firing tear gas. And the clashes kind of went on all night until a lot of people got arrested. You can see where that's going. Um... This protest, uh, also one of the kind of big things that happened was they started doing non civil disobedience, which is also kind of rare in Lebanon. We don't see that often. They went and they occupied a ministry building. They occupied the Ministry of Environment. Um, here's some video that came out of that. Um, they, 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 they called for the Minister of Environment's resignation because uh, he had failed at the garbage issue. The garbage was piling up, and they actually went into the ministry one day and all just sat down. Um, they, they snuck cameras in. It was a long standoff. Uh, the police uh, dealt with it for several hours until they basically kind of grabbed all of them and threw them out. And there was a, at this time, while they were inside for about eight hours, there was huge protests downstairs, at least 5,000 people. Um, this is the beginning of it. You can't see it got very violent with the riot police downstairs, um, and they were kind of waving the flag from the building that they had kind of taken over. Um, that was kind of one of the peak moments of, of, this, uh, of, this, of this movement. I'll just go on here. What's also interesting is that this group actually spawned a lot of other groups. Uh, Badnan Hasib, we want accountability. Shabeb, um, youth against the uh, regime. Um, and all these pages have tens of thousands of likes and big audiences. The Ustink page itself has uh, 200,000 likes. So that's a pretty big audience in a country of, of 4 million um, and definitely rivals some of the TV station audiences. Um, so, so throughout these six months, 200 people have been arrested. Uh, one, only one person has been in critical condition. There have been really no deaths, which is kind of also surprising. Uh, a lot of these protests happen. People just die like flies uh, in other countries. But um, so far, that hasn't been the case in Lebanon. All of the arrested people, as I showed, uh, have been released. I'll show you another video of that. Um, uh, you know, again, using police stations as protest, uh, uh, protest grounds is, is also unheard of. Um, and, and when people do get arrested, there are these big campaigns to release them. I will show you now one more. So two activists had been arrested for uh, 11 days, and there was a big campaign to free them, and there were a lot of shaming in the media, and finally, <laughs> you know, Again, happening in front of a police station with the TV cameras there. It was like a wedding. the parents to get involved. 
There's a, a big police station right here that's very well protected by a lot of barbed wire. And the TV stations were right there. Um, the satellite trucks were there. The satellite trucks are following the activists. And these videos, they kind of air once on TV, but the, the interesting thing about having these social media pages is that you can kind of save them and replay them over and over again. Um, and a lot of replay value out of that, things that were just broadcasted once. Um, another interesting thing about the journalists kind of getting involved here is, is, you know, why are the journalists kind of taking the side of the protest? Not all of the TV stations are actually doing this. Only a few are. Uh, some of them have kind of remained, uh, uh, you know, stuck to their feudal leaders and saying this is all a conspiracy from the West, uh, um, typical kind of, uh, you know, they're on drugs or, or something like that. Um, and those kind of stories, but actually, some media have actually turned uh, turned a, a page on that kind of sectarian structure, uh, feudal structure, and are actually following these protests around, um, and they can't be ignored. Um, some people that got out of jail, uh, you know, the airtime that these people are getting—it's really interesting. Um, these are really popular channels too. Uh, it wasn't really happy for everybody who got out of jail. This one woman uh, described being tortured uh, during one day in jail. Um, and all of this was aired live on almost every TV channel in the country. So again, calling the police, uh, accusing the police of torture. She said she was just filming and, and, and she captured police brutality. They took her camera. They took her phone. They beat her. They didn't respect me because I was Hajjabi. And her, right here, she kind of makes a big accusation. She kept her memory card under her tongue, she's saying, and she's going to basically shame all of them. The first criminal is the people that are not with us, and the second is the minister. She named the minister. And then she actually blames the Speaker of the House, Nabih Barre, who is one of the most powerful people in Lebanon, and to kind of say his name out there and associate him with torture um, is really kind of uh, a new thing, to, to say the least. Um, the journalists, another aspect of why the journalists are cooperating, the journalists are actually kind of, because they're down at the protest scene, they're actually experiencing the tear gas and the water cannons themselves, and they're getting angry. Um, so here we have a, a, a scene of a reporter getting in the middle of it. So she's saying that the, they're being barbaric against the protesters. She didn't like getting wet. So Lebanese reporters aren't really used to this kind of confrontation, as you can see. Uh, and uh, a lot of them are getting very angry. And so the, these channels are really kind of a big deal, is that they're down there live for hours and hours and hours. Um, and sometimes it's kind of like, why are they still down there? They're almost like kind of intentionally um, using this, taking advantage of this atmosphere to spite the state um, and kind of building on, I think, the momentum that, that these activists have gotten. Um, I'll just end real, I'll, I'll, I could show a few more videos. I don't know how time I have left. Um, but let me just see if there's one more here that I could show you before finishing here. Uh, another interesting thing here is that the police are also using social media. And during these protests, they have their Twitter account with their thousands of followers, uh, Lebanese police. And they kind of have these tweets that are kind of um, 
you know, that cast doubt in the protesters. They say that, oh, here they are lighting a fire in Martyr's Square, you know, and that sounds like they're going to burn the square down. I mean, so it was pretty, you know, scary tweet there. Um, but then the activists kind of went back and said, no, you know, they're actually lighting a fire to dry their clothes because you've been hosing them down all day. Uh, and that tweet went kind of viral, and um, the activists used that uh, as, uh, on, in a post. And the actual uh, media outlets also, uh, some reporters on the scene are also debunking the police. They're actually saying that a reporter on live TV said these police tweets are all are, are false or they're not really telling the whole story. Um, so video is also used in a lot of ways uh, uh, to, to kind of um, shed light on police brutality uh, and also the kind of technology of video here. We can see how riot police are um, kind of defying international conventions. Sorry. Well, that's one, another one, but I'll show you this one out of time. Um, so here we are in downtown Beirut again, another protest. And they're using these arrows to show where the police are firing from. And they're showing how the police actually fired back on themselves. Um, and the tear gas explodes in the police. So this video went pretty viral. Um, but actually, I wanted to show you this one. After hosing the crowd down, two officers come out. And they were able to analyze the degree at which this was fired. So it was fired at the protesters are not above their heads, zero degree angle. All of this kind of documentation making the case for the state's brutality. There's a lot more I could show you. I'll just kind of wrap up um, with some of the critiques of the protest, the recent protest. Um, once again, how do we get from that violent atmosphere to doing the catapults? What they've been doing lately is a lot of media videos, a lot of kind of prank videos, prank calls. They've been throwing garbage at politicians' doorsteps. Some people find that to be a focus on the media um, over activism. Uh, they recently called for a vacation day, not a strike. Um, so they kind of changed the language. Some of the traditional left were kind of upset about that language. We have to say strike, not vacation. Um, not all the meetings of these groups are open to the public, uh, so there's some issues there. Um, also, there's issues in the protest being a middle-class protest, and some of the people came from the slums of Beirut to participate. They were a bit more violent. Uh, they kind of expressed themselves by breaking things, and the protesters kind of uh, heeded the police call and the minister's call and called these people infiltrators. And so it was kind of like people thought they were turning on their own protesters because they were committing acts of violence. It thought worse. Um, I'm reading, uh, some, some, some media analysts have seen this kind of behavior elsewhere. These groups get romanticized, but they focus so much on the media that they don't they take time away from actually doing organizational and political activities, outreach to other communities, um, and they often kind of isolate um, other people uh, and, and kind of alienate them. Um, connective action is, is really what's going on here. Uh, Lance Bennett and Alexander Sandberg have... Uh, Sergerberg have talked about that. Um, it's this kind of collective asking, shaming, the formation of these kind of groups uh, that use uh, technology to, to form a group. Um, so there's peer production, which is basically, you know, you're producing content for free. It's not a centralized thing. You're producing the kind of ammunition that's being used. Um, a lot of research, a personal action frame, which means basically you are uh, inserting yourself into politics without really joining a party. Um, so this is a new practice of politics in Lebanon can be done over these kind of, of, of issues. Um, and this kind of lowers the barriers to participation because Lebanese uh, political parties are notorious for being uh, corrupt and feudal and having not having elections, so um, it's very hard to join them or, or have a voice within them. Um, so I'm looking at now my research how these, how these media logics are shaping political culture um, and, and discussions. Uh, even something like a prank call. There have been prank calls, for example, to government ministries. Um, but it's, these are kind of a new grammar of, of critical uh, thinking that's, that's kind of really kind of coming in the face of a lot of the old systems of power and politics we, we've had in Lebanon. Um, I want to show you one last thing on that 
issue. So uh, to kind of go back to these Eustink protests, a lot of people have said they have died down. Um, they are kind of doing more media stunts now. Um, but I think some of the, the tools that they're using and, 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 and the kind of borders that they're pushing are going to be important for other acts. And one of these kind of uh, events that happened alongside um, that, that this kind of movement brought to bear was um, we had uh, a member of the business community in Lebanon who was very upset by the protests. He said that they were dirtying the downtown area uh, because they were having like, you know, they were, having, they were selling corn, they were selling cheap things. And he said, we don't want to turn downtown into a flea market. Uh, we want downtown to be where the high streets are, the nice hotels are. Uh, how dare they, you know, hurt our businesses this way. Uh, and he has to use the word Abu Rahusa, which means like uh, cheapo. Uh, it's a cheapo market. And he used that word in his press conference. He kind of lambasted the protesters. We don't want to turn downtown to Abu Rahusa town. Uh, so Abu Rahusa actually became a thing. Uh, it became a hashtag. Um, and people started to organize, uh, uh, you know, ab- around it. Um, and they actually started to use his picture because he's the Chanel distributor in Lebanon. So they started to, you know, uh, this is really a bad thing to say in Arabic. Uh, uh, they used that uh, word in a bad way. They started to, you know, picture him being part of this flea market. And, you know, we're all Abu Rahusa. You know, we're proud of our, you know, peasant heritage. Uh, uh, so they really started to go after him straight out of Abu Rahusa. Uh, that's downtown after the war. Uh, and so the interesting thing about this, there's a lot of people that went on these memes and, and people started making songs. This guy made a song with his, with his kids. So it was like electricity, water, Abu Rahusa. So all the things that are, are failed in the country. So getting the whole family involved uh, and, and, and being funny about it. But what's interesting about it is they actually organized an Abu Rahusa flea market. And downtown Beirut, as I said in the beginning, it's this place now where you know, it's really about millionaires and million-dollar apartments. And it used to be a place that was the downtown of the city where kind of everybody came to buy their groceries. There was souks, there was vegetable markets, there were chickens walking around. It was grimy and gritty um, and full of people. And now it's been sanitized into cobblestone streets and uh, you know, only Chanel kind of uh, businesses, Rolex, that kind of thing. And people kind of feel that this downtown project was a kind of thievery where they lost their city to private investment that has no place for the people of the city. Um, and so they said, we want to make it Abu Rahusa. So they had a, a whole um, evening where they, everybody sold kind of uh, things real cheap. They did haircuts for a dollar. They sold juice for a dollar. Um, and you can't get anything for a dollar in downtown Beirut. I mean, you, a cup of coffee is like $10. Um, so, so they were kind of answering that need. Um, and not only the, the, the activist videos, but also big news stations were there once again, uh, like Sky News Arabia. And I'll play a little bit of that for you. So juice for less than a dollar. So they're recreating these souks that are gone. There's no more souks. There's no more affordability. So he's saying that, you know, uh, you know, we... Downtown has become a ghost town because nobody can afford it. And he said, we, don't, we want to return to our, our, our souks and our traditional markets. We want to have a place for the people. And we don't want it for the, the 0.3%. So in America, you have the 1% and of the 0.3%. It's even worse. Um, who are actually uh, you know, the people that are uh, ruling things. I'll, uh, so again, this, this is kind of one of these episodes where uh, a protest that started about garbage became about also um, class issues and development issues and who, who owns the city and, the her- and what happened to the city. Um, again, now trying to bring up all these post-war uh, political uh, power plays and, and, and things that people really didn't have, really couldn't resist at the time. You know, 10 years, 20 years ago when, the, when downtown was rebuilt, uh, opposition was silenced. You know, there were a few newspapers that covered it, but they were easily silenced and there was no big social media coverage. I don't know, I mean, if today the same kind of project could happen. Today, every single plot, every single house is a, is a, is a, is a battle uh, field. And they probably couldn't have gotten away with uh, this multi-billion dollar project that left a lot of people out in the dark. Um, 
So again, it's very important in Lebanese context because of the feudal system and, 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 and things I've discussed. Um, I'm also reading about hybrid media power, which is a book by Andrew uh, Chadwick, Hybrid Media System. And it really talks about how all social institutions are media institutions. So we have to look at um, these activist groups as media institutions as well. Um, the boundaries are being blurred between the old and the new media. We've seen how the journalists are kind of being influenced by the new media um, and changing their way of doing business, and also how politics and media are also blurring the lines because of the attention that's given to these campaigns are very kind of vulnerable. Uh, politicians feel vulnerable to them, um, and they're forced to adapt and lose power. Uh, so there are questions, again, of these new elites. Uh, how transparent are they? These young kids are well-intentioned, but uh, again, how much do we know about them? Um, but at the end of the day, I'm looking at the question of digital accountability. Uh, is, that, is that happening? Can it be digital citizenship? We don't really have citizenship in Lebanon because it's a new form of citizenship. Um, and that's my site. And if you like to follow BayReport.com and get in touch with me, I'd be happy to talk more about these issues.